The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 4th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about a Super Bowl that was definitely a football game. You cannot argue with that, Stefan. Uh, the Patriots beat the Rams 13-3, to and we'll talk about why and how, and please God, someone make it stop. The Ringers' Brian Curtis will join us to talk about Tony Romo's first big game with a capital BNG. And we'll also talk about the Knicks trade of Chris Dapps Porzingis and whether it was good or bad. There are no other options. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. And also joining us for the program is Slate's very own Ben Mathis Lilly, who comes to us today bearing hot sports opinions on balls of varying shapes. Welcome, Ben. Hey, guys. It's only two shapes. Uh, don't uh, Unless sleep you've on... Unless you got some on, surprises for yeah, us. Don't, don't sleep on Ben's disc thoughts. <laughs> Not a ball. Not a ball. What are other ball shapes? Is golf is, you know, dimpled. Is that a shape or more of a texture? I think in, in uh, science, that's a shape. Yeah. Wiffle? Is wiffle a shape? <laughs> Taurus? Rhomboid? Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many yeah, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The Patriots won the Super Bowl, Stefan. Huh. 13 to 3, sixth title for Tom Brady and Bill Belichick. Some people say that the game was bad. But I say the game was really bad. What's your take? Worse than really bad. A tribute to the defenses, though. The scheming was awesome. Super Bowl 53, a tribute to defense, a gala tribute to defense with song and dance numbers from, uh, from across the, the history of, uh, of the NFL. I actually enjoyed um, Ben reading some of the write-ups this morning. Bill Barnwell did a good one on ESPN of why – uh, the defenses were so successful, but that did not retroactively make me enjoy the game somehow. Yeah, I think that would only really have uh, helped out if you could have learned after every failed play exactly why it failed. But um, but that that's not really possible in real time. So you just saw a lot of passes landing, you know, 10 yards from the nearest receiver. Right, because it's not very exciting to say that the reality of this game was that both teams adjusted defensively and it yeah. worked and the Patriots did it better than the Rams did it. And, I, th you know, this game was a reminder that 99% of people who watch football – 
and more during the Super Bowl, have absolutely no idea what's going on during a game. It ourselves inc- included. Ourselves included. It is incredibly <laughs> yeah. complicated. It is very difficult to explain. It's very difficult to observe in real time. Um, it is very difficult for lay people to understand football at an expert level. It's part of the reason, I think, that Belichick doesn't bother with media gaggles. He he can't not see the game in its most complex terms. You don't think it's just because he's a dick? No, I don't. I think it's I think it's partly, you know, look, it's he's got some sort of, of of psychological issue there, but he can't see the game not in its most complex terms and has no patience for <laughs> describing it, for trying to describe it in less than complex terms. That's that's one way to put at it. Uh, put it. Uh, Sean McVay said after the game that he got out coached. I'm pretty numb right now, but definitely I got out coached. I didn't do nearly a good enough job. For a football team, this one is going to stick with you. It just stings in your gut. And getting out coached is kind of a cliche that coaches lean on because they don't want to, um, you know, say my players, my players sucked, sucked and their players yeah. didn't suck. Um, but in this case, it seems actually apt. Um, and the fascinating thing to me is that Belichick is rightly and Brian Flores, the Patriots defensive coordinator, rightly getting credit for having a really good game plan and implementing it well. But the Chiefs scored 31 points against the Patriots uh, in the AFC Championship game. And last year's Super Bowl, Nick Foles, Doug Peterson, and the Eagles totally carved up the Patriots. And so this notion of Belichick being a mastermind and a guru who can do no wrong is kind of correct in aggregate if you look over his entire career. But it's certainly not been the case um, in big games in recent years. And so, you know, Ben, what what was it? in the pieces that you read that sort of helped point to this is the reason why McVay in this particular game got out coached where other coaches maybe didn't. Well, I mean, you know, I guess the, the Rams relied uh, on all season on, on being able to throw the ball in first and second down uh, and uh, get in, you know, the proverbial advantageous situations on third down or, or just pick up the first down uh, right away. And, uh, you know, what Belichick and the Patriots staff did was they had deployed an abundance of defensive uh, defensive backs. uh, And those defensive backs were arrayed in so-called quarters coverage, which uh, not to get too technical because I I can't because I don't understand the technical aspects of it was something that was surprising and confusing to the Rams. And so, you know, let's get a little more technical quarters coverage is where each defensive back takes a quarter of the field. It's a zone coverage. Sure. You, yeah, your corner, your cornerbacks take the outside quarters, and you have two safeties that are that are covering the middle of the field, and those safeties can come up close, uh, you know, on the early downs to uh, come up close to the line of scrimmage to protect against the run, and then they can drop back uh, uh, to protect against the pass. And uh, and and these uh, these defensive backs uh, are also very skilled. Um, and as uh, as an article we wrote last week uh, on Slate, published last week on Slate, pointed out, Belichick has kind of been has been hoarding defensive backs for the last few years. Um, and so they just had a lot of guys to throw at the Rams receivers uh, and they took them out of the game. And then, and then what you saw was <laughs> what, what we already talked about on third down third and long, the Rams just uh, weren't effective because they aren't a traditional, um, you know, drop back and, and, and drew blood. So, chuck it down the field on third down kind of team. They rely on Drew using Blood, their... So just citing the greatest quarterback in NFL history. to drop back and, and connect. When, when I think of a, right, a stationary quarterback <laughs> slinging it, you know, like 
18 yards, uh, I think, of Bledsoe and Dan Marino. Um, and and the, the Rams are built on, you know, using their jet sweeps and their motions and their tricks to uh, to kind of confuse the defense. And, and when when that's not happening, they're, they're not capable of, of being that more traditional style, or at least they weren't last night. Right. And, and where Sean McVay is taking the blame is for not adjusting. And he's also protecting his quarterback, Jared Goff, a little bit, who wasn't good enough to adjust. I think Nick Foles found ways to adjust in last year's Super Bowl. He was more adept at at reading the defense, which is part of the quarterback's job. It's well, not I mean, entirely Eagles, Sean McVay's job to read the defense. Um, it is Sean McVay's job to call the plays. I mean, the Eagles were never on the back foot in that game either. Like, it seemed right. like it was the Patriots who were in a position where they needed to adjust to what the Eagles were doing last year, and it was quite the opposite this time around. I mean, it's something kind of new that I've learned about football this year, and it might have been from a Barnwell column or somebody else, is this notion that um, third down conversion percentage is often cited as a reason why certain teams win and certain teams don't. But in fact, third down conversions fluctuate pretty wildly. And so the key to winning is to never get into third down, yeah. which is what you were saying, Ben. And so just by virtue of the fact that the Rams were unable to succeed on first and second down, just put them over and over again in position to fail and position to punt. Um, and they're really, to, to simplify it, even more, like not even getting into the nuances of what the Patriots were doing in terms of coverage. There are really two ways an offense can succeed. You need at least one of these two things. Number one is just have players who can, by virtue of how great they are, just like get open or make amazing plays in the open field or whatever it is that great players do. The other way is to be put your decent players or even your great players in position to succeed by virtue of formations or scheme or confusion. And the Rams definitely had neither of those two things uh, on Sunday. Um, yeah. Partly because Gurley, whatever the hell is going on with Todd Gurley, like he was their guy all year who would um, take advantage of defenses and put them in bad positions. They also had a slot receiver Cooper Cup, who's been out for a very long time, who is a matchup problem for defenses. And then the third guy they really had who puts defenses in bad positions was Brandon Cooks, who was in position to catch two touchdowns and one by virtue of kind of Cooks not making a contested catch and one by virtue of Goff just like not Same. seeing him early enough. Yeah. Like they had the chance. Those were their two chances really to score touchdowns in the game, those games where they where Cooks got open or got kind of open and it just didn't work out. Well, the contested one, he had one hand to catch the ball with because right. the Patriots defender was dragging down right. his left arm. Right. Um, and on the other one, that was nothing to do with Cooks. He was wide open in the middle of the field and Goff just didn't see him soon enough. I did think I, I saw someone say he might have gone a little too deep uh, also. So, you know, and he was and too open. Well, yeah. So he was out the back there on the back line and Goff was kind of, you know, kind of threw a floater up there right. and and didn't have as much of the field to play with because he had gone back but yeah I was gonna say that too and then and then uh, on on that last game ceiling interception um, it was golf that didn't make the throw I mean Brady on the on the one drive they had was was placing these balls to Gronkowski perfectly um, and then on the other hand you had golf trying to throw that uh, deep I guess fade route to uh, Cooks in the end zone, and the blitz came through too quickly, and he just kind of chucked it up, um, and it was an easy pick for Gilmore. Um, I don't think anyone is going to care or talk about it, but the Rams clearly did something on defense to screw up Tom Brady, because given how well the Patriots 
uh, flummoxed the Rams' offense, you'd think that the final score would have been 30-3, to but it wasn't. I mean, Brady, what, threw for a bunch of yards. I think the, the Patriots' total offense did exceed 400, but nothing felt super significant. I mean, they didn't mount, as you just said, Ben, a real a touchdown drive until there were seven minutes left in the game. Um, through three quarters, with neither team had been in in the opponent's red zone, um, it was you know the Rams did something really good too on defense, but absent any offense, it was kind of meaningless. And for the Patriots on offense, I mean their offensive line was crazy good. I mean Brady had plenty of time, so then when finally they were able to connect four passes in a row, they went down the field quickly. Yeah, it's kind of makes for a concise conversation because um, the only time that the Patriots really succeeded on offense was when they were throwing to Julian Edelman or on the last drive, which, and again, Bill Barnwell did a good job of explaining this and his column on ESPN on, on Monday morning is that they ran his play Haas Y Juke three times in a row and it worked three times in a row. And that's really all they needed to do to win this game. This is a play where they split um, uh, that they figured out a way basically to get uh, cornerbacks to cover, um, you know, James Devlin, the fullback to cover um, Gronkowski guys who are not their like most agile receivers. And then they figured out a way to get um, like linebackers on Edelman just by splitting the, the running backs and the tight ends out wide. And they, Again, this was a failure of the Rams to, to make an adjustment. They did this three times in a row. But we just fixate on little mistakes like this in a game that's so low scoring and, and tightly contested. Whereas, not to make this too much about the Saints, but really it's always about the Saints when you think <laughs> about it. But in the game last week when the Saints scored 23 points against a good Rams defense, lost in overtime, so many people said – the Saints really blew it. You shouldn't blame the referees because they had so many, so many chances. Like, so, you know, Tom Brady scores 13 points in this game, and he's the great Tom Brady who wins six rings. It's all contextual. It all depends on what happens in the game. And we're just, like, so stupid <laughs> about how we analyze, analyze games. And just to, to say that, um, you know, an offense that scores 23 points really blew it and had all these opportunities, whereas an offense that scored 13, like, oh, they were so smart because they ran Haas wide juke three times in a row. It's like, well, great. You know, you, you scored one touchdown. Congratulations. Yeah, but, but it was I, good enough to win this game. The other contextual part is that this was like the second most, the second highest scoring season in NFL history. So we were, we were conditioned to expect, and these were two of the four highest scoring teams, most potent offenses in the NFL. So we were conditioned to expect, and we've become conditioned to expect, and to want, and to appreciate offensive oh, we games. We want. We want. We totally <laughs> want. Um, and this ended up not being anything like that. So it was just sort of head-scratching, like, what the hell is going on? Everyone's been telling us that that it's all about offenses. The quarterback calls all this protection. Everybody can get three free. The defensive backs can't do anything anymore. Look at all the points. And then these teams go six for 25 on third down and punt 14 times and you're like what the fuck well what i really enjoyed was the idea of this record scratch happening in in front offices around the league because as as one of the other things that's already been happening uh in the in the with the teams that are already out of uh, competition is everyone's been trying to hire a guy who like 
and it kind of seems like Sean, Sean McVeigh, right? So the, you know, the kind of the apotheosis of this was Cliff King, Kingsbury, who just got fired from Texas Tech, ending up as the head coach of the Arizona Cardinals because he runs a wide open spread offense. And then, you know, like, and here you are in the third and fourth quarter of the Super Bowl, and the only thing that worked was the Patriots putting their fullback and Rex Burhead, who is basically a fullback, on the field with Rob Gonkowski. So it's like, oh, no, no, now we've got to go back and hire the fullbacks guy. Uh, Kate, like, we got to like, oh, oh, this era is over. The era is over. Oh, my. Uh, the, era, the era is not over. Let's, let's be clear. Uh, Should we talk about Julian Edelman a little bit? Yeah, let's talk about Julian Edelman a little bit. But before we do that, I wanted to just um, note that I feel like there is kind of a narrow path for the fan uh, to appreciate a defensive game. And there was like there was one play. So you guys remember the softball episode of The Simpsons where sure. they're doing the training montage and they show – to, just to demonstrate how great all of the pl- players are. It's like guy hits a home run, but it's like caught over the fence and then throws it in. And there's like a tag, like a perfect throw. And like the guy, it's just like a perfect tag play at home. Like when teams are evenly matched and playing really well, sports don't generally look like that. Like if a, if a defense is getting a lot of pressure um, up the middle, the quarterback just looks totally panicked and it's, you know, and we're conditioned to f- feel like the offense is really running the show and it just looks so- like something didn't work. It's not so much that something succeeded. But there was a play in this game where Stefan Gilmore was covering Brandon Cooks on kind of an out route and he had him just totally blanketed. It was a really good throw by Goff and Gilmore just kind of swatted it away at the last second. And that's a moment where you're like, oh man, what a what an amazing defensive play. But I just didn't feel like throughout the game, even though it was great defense, there were that many things that parsed. It was just like, okay, Jared Goff just like threw the ball into the ground because someone was chasing him. Like that does not look like competence. Or Jared Goff threw the ball into CJ Anderson's butt, which he did at one point. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you would have had to have like one of those specialty cameras on the cornerbacks the entire game to really get a sense of like where the action was actually happening, right? I mean, like the the real achievement in this game were like the guys that were just matching Cooks uh, and Robert Woods step for step uh, deep in the secondary, but we don't we don't really see that on TV. You wanted to talk about Edelman, yeah? Let's talk about Edelman a little bit. So so Edelman, who is, and I think we'll talk about this maybe with Brian Curtis because he is. Edelman is quite a, a piece of work when he's talking on television. Um, he, he, he's frustrating for all the reasons that, that people don't like the Patriots, of course. He's white. He gets open a lot. He's scrappy. He used to play a different position. Um, but he was open a hell of a lot. And it is, again, testament to Brady here for finding ways to, to hit this guy who's wide open running across the middle of the field. But we would be remiss if we did not note that Edelman missed four games this season because of a a, a performance-enhancing drug suspension, um, which nobody says anything about in football. I mean, look, people I'm not say say anything. a lot of things about it on Twitter. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Baseball writers said a lot about it on Twitter last night. Tyler Kepner, Joe Sheehan, well, John he would have been he would have been out if uh, if it had been baseball. Right, just cannot given, play in the, given the rules. Season, play, given I, the rules, I find that does that bother you? It doesn't bother me. I feel like. Um, I'm not somebody who particularly cares about PEDs. I don't get on uh, – it, it doesn't offend me. 
mm-hmm. morally. And so just noting like, oh, if we had like a way more um, punitive regime, then this guy um, wouldn't have won the MVP. It's like, do we really want to impose that on the NFL? I mean, given what these players have to go through Endure. to actually play, do we think that whatever it is that Julian Edelman took is actually, you know, worse worse and or better for him than uh, the stuff that players take that is legal? It's just like, I don't particularly care. Like, if you're in on football, then I just don't feel like you have any ground to stand on to criticize anything the players do or don't take to play this this ridiculous game. And yet, he was suspended for four games for violating some policy. So, at some point, it's like... Well, if Goodell suspended him, then certainly... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's where the eye-rolling begins. I mean, look, everybody, the number of players that could or would be suspended if football's testing policies were more rigorous would be much higher. Um, And you're right, Josh, maybe we shouldn't care at all. And maybe Julian Edelman, whatever he took, fine. I mean, the the problem with the policy is that we have no idea. Everything can be blown off as I made a mistake and it opens the league to criticism. But who cares? The league doesn't care. Yeah, and the the thing that that I I think you guys are right, I I, I agree with you on the the moral aspect of it, uh, what I guess what frustrates me a little as a fan is not really knowing whether I mean did this game hinge on the Rams secondary having like a slightly different approach to risk uh, when taking supplements you know and like says a fan I kind of <laughs> I mean I want to know why a team won or why a team lost so you know that's what I'm interested in and and that area you know it's so um, that whole part of the game for obvious reasons is so opaque so I guess that's what kind of frustrates me. Um, like, uh, you know, I was talking to Josh about this in the, um, Clemson, um, the week before the national championship game in, in college football had some, uh, PED suspensions, um, announced and, uh, and it's the same thing, you know, like I, I kind of want to know why, whether the team is winning because of what it did on the field or like, I mean, I don't really like not knowing that maybe Clemson had a little bit of an advantage over Alabama because it was better throughout the year with its masking agents or whatever. I just find that kind of frustrating if, even though I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm not sitting here, um, boiling with outrage at Julian Edelman for having taken the one thing you're not looked at the all the ingredients on his on his protein shaker or whatever it may the case may be. Well, I'm sorry that we did not uh, get you the full urinalysis of all the <laughs> the players. Maybe that should be on a crawl. The ESPN uh, mega cast. They got yeah. rid of the they got rid of the coaches room. Maybe they can just have a bunch of guys in lab lab coats just looking at urine. That would be, just, that would be just fascinating. Just all in the open so the blogs can sort it out. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to our conversation about uh, Tony Romo with the Ringers' Brian Curtis, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, uh, Ben and Stefan and I are going to talk about the uh, fans of the New Orleans Saints, maybe myself included, who just cannot 
get over that whole situation that happened and should fans of the New Orleans Saints, maybe myself included, just get over that situation that happened. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus, just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. And now let us talk about the broadcast of Super Bowl 53. Joining us now to discuss is the ringers, Brian Curtis, who did the uh, he played the Super Bowl perfectly, did the like week of preamble, skipped out on the game. Congratulations, Brian. You played it well. Yeah, it turns out you can't hear the announcers from the press box. So <laughs> I, um, I flew home. I was done. You know, the real story is Romo and all the football seemed really secondary. All right. Before we get into our uh, rum analysis, let's listen to a little montage that I like to call the three faces of Tony Romo. Let's listen. Well, my mic works again so I can talk. This works out perfect. I was saying such good stuff on that play earlier, Jim. It was fantastic. So you see how he motioned over there? You think it's man to man, but then all of a sudden they'll drop out and play zone sometimes. Pocket protected. That leaves Edelman open. And shoved out by Talib. They went all out pressure. Belichick waited the whole game to send it. And Gilmore wasn't going to get beat deep. Waiting for the big time interception. So we've got comedian Romo, prognosticator Romo, and excitable Romo. Not very much, not very much prognosticator Romo or, or, or excitable Romo uh, on the broadcast last night. It was like Romo was like kind of doing like a half hour in front of a brick wall, you know, working out some material at the comedy cellar. Like he was, he was, uh, he was trying to keep us entertained. Yes, he was. And I think amidst all the, you know, Romo mania, he's the next Madden and Howard Cosell and Don Meredith all wrapped into one uh, stuff that we've been hearing for like months, if not years now. It's his, it's his one weakness, which is when there's a bad game, Romo is kind of at one register, which is deliriously happy to be watching football. <laughs> and it's sort of his producer actually told me that in Atlanta this week. He's like, you know, we really have to work on if there's a crappy game and people at home aren't as enthusiastic as you, what do you do? And how do you kind of come to their level level and, you know, acknowledge like this is like this is kind of boring and bad and, you know, sort of work within that template. I thought the Jim Nance and I'm going to say something nice about Jim Nance now. I thought that Jim Nance did a good job of helping Romo be funnier, which is a really weird thing to say <laughs> because you don't think of Jim Nance and sense of humor uh, in the same breath. But there was there were a couple points during the game that Nance was really good. Um, at one point, I think it was Romo that or it might have been Nance who praised a fantastic clothesline of a player and then made a longest yard reference very s- sort of subtly. And then there was another point where the refs a flag was thrown and nobody could quite figure out what the call was going to be. And Tony Romo um, did, I think he, I don't know whether he, he remembered this from my childhood, but there was a, a Monday night football broadcast in the seventies where um, I think it was, it was Dandy Don Meredith and Alex Karras and it was a blowout game. And they said, let's cut to the huddle and hear what they're saying. And then Alex Karras started to recite the Lord's prayer and Romo was intuiting what was going on among the referees. And they just found a way to kind of be funny when this game was not conducive to funny. 
Yeah, I think I think one of the most fascinating things Romo has done is his effect on Jim Nance, who is, you know, as you say, will never be confused with, you know, a comedian who is headlining at Madison Square Garden. But what he's done, what Jim Nance was always really good at, was being pretty technically great at announcing things. And Romo, and he's what he's done, and he said this this week too, is to try to match Romo's enthusiasm and to try to kind of smile along with Romo. So all of a sudden, you've got him, you know, sort of working as the comedy partner. And that's, I, I think that's like been maybe the most dramatic effect of the whole Romo deal, is that Jim Nance just feels like he's found human. a totally different gear. Yeah, he feels more human. I've really softened. It's like a manic pixie... The Manic Pixie Dream Girl uh, narrative. I was going to say congratulations to Jim Nance on his third marriage. Just like, just keeps, yeah. uh, you know, injecting new and new life, uh, youth into uh, into Jim Nance's life. Um, ben, you wanted to talk about how this game was kind of uniquely unsuited for analysis, just given how the action was in the secondary, right? Yeah, and so I was I was looking a little bit into uh, the the all twenty two tape, which is the uh, kind of the vaunted and and previously mythical tape that has every player in the field on it that coaches uh, watch. And and for for decades, um, this Wall Street Journal article uh, I was just looking at, um, you know, decades this wasn't made available to the public. The, the feeling, probably correctly, was that you know when when football broadcast started, almost all of the action really was on the line, um, you know. You didn't. You didn't really need to see downfield for the what you know, twelve to fifteen passes a game. Uh, you didn't need to see those guys on every snap. Um, but obviously, the game now, when you have teams throwing forty, fifty times a game, uh, and especially in a game like this where everything turns on these matchups between safeties and cornerbacks and receivers and slot receivers and tight ends, um, that was all happening, and there there certainly was action in that part of the field. But we weren't seeing it because we were mostly seeing the lines you know, running in guys on the line, running into each other, neither team running the ball much. So it was mostly lines running into each other. Quarterback drops back, can't find anything, throws it away. Um, and that's, you know, and that obviously made it a pretty, pretty dull broadcast to watch when you're not seeing, uh, you know, what, uh, what Gilmore, what the, what McCord, the McCordies are doing, um, in, in the backfield. I think one thing that's interesting about broadcasting, especially here in 2019 is it's this real push pull between X's and O's, and kind of dignifying the football nerd world, and I say that as, as, as four of us talking on this call, football nerd world that understands analytics, X's and O's, watches some All-22, all that stuff. And then also servicing the much, much, much bigger audience that just, you know, is coming in and wants to be entertained. And I think one thing that's interesting about Romo is he's actually pulled the broadcast more in the direction of all 22 and X's and O's. And his producer, Jim Rickoff, said this week that one thing he does is a lot of the times right before the ball is snapped, he says, I want to watch the safeties on this play, so let's pull the picture out. And this is the standard picture we see when the ball is snapped to a wider shot so we can see more of the secondary. And I don't know this, but if my eyes didn't deceive me last night, if you watch, there were a bunch of times the ball was snapped and the players looked really small on the screen, even on my mm-hmm. giant big screen. And I believe that that was Romo saying, let's widen out so we can see just a little bit more of this. That's really but I think the funny thing is he's actually, he is of that mindset. And he actually wants to watch the game more like this. And he is probably doing as much as humanly possible to pull a mainstream television broadcast in that direction. 
Um, I think it's, which makes sense because he has the ability, though, to also service everybody else, his enthusiasm, his vocal inflections, um, his joking around. He does have the ability to sort of serve both audiences, and that's a good thing. Right, and obviously yeah. you have to be able to, the, the key is you have to be able to explain what's going on. You can't just show the entire field, as Josh was saying earlier. I mean, it's, 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 or it's maniacally complex. So it's, you know, if you, and if all you do is pull out, um, it just looks like even more of a mess than it already does. So obviously you have to have that ability to, to do that and at the same time simplify, you know, these, these kind of like immensely complicated schemes down to something that, that, that everyone can understand. I am officially tap the brakes guy on any John Madden comparisons. John Madden being the best that has ever done this in, in not football, but just sports broadcasting period ever. I won't hear arguments otherwise, and I won't even entertain Tony Romo being in that sentence for, you know, another five years. But the one thing they do both did really well is they understand schematically everything that's happening and they pick one thing mm-hmm. on a replay and they explain it in really, really normal human language and really, really inviting, appealing language so that anybody watching it can understand. If you watched him last night, he doesn't use a ton of terminology. He doesn't use, you know, inside release and all that stuff, or maybe he puts it in there, but really it's just, he's going to hit, he's looking for Gronk on the outside here, right? This is, mm-hmm. this is the way this scheme, or watch, Edelman is coming across the play, or Brandon Cooks is coming across the play and he was wide open. That kind of stuff. He's just really, really good at that. So it did seem, though, Brian, that he predicted a little bit less in the Super Bowl. And I'm wondering both if if that was your sense as well, but also how much do you think Romo, um, his charm and like a great Romo game is predicated on offensive success? Because... (laughs) It's really fun to hear Romo say, they're going to throw a Edelman here and he's going to be wide open and then he's wide open. It's like less, you don't really hear Romo say, oh man, on this play, Goff's going to probably run around and then throw it into the ground after five yards. (laughs) It's kind of a less exciting prediction, right? Yeah, I mean, I think he was at his best. I mean, I think that over the fourth quarter and overtime, the AFC championship game is his absolute happy place as a broadcaster. And, you know, when it is Jared Goff is going to run around and throw the ball into the ground, I think that's, that's harder. It's probably harder for everybody to do. But I think in those cases, somebody like Madden just can turn on his entertainer button and go, you know what, I'm just going to entertain the audience right now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull completely out of football for a few minutes and just be funny. And I think Tony, I think the thing about Romo is that he needs – he needs the X's and O's, and he actually, as you say, needs offensive success to be great. And Do you get the sense that he was – go ahead. Did you get the sense that he got self-conscious about the prediction stuff? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, that was like the only thing people asked him about all week. Um, I don't What's the stock market going to do? <laughs> yeah, first of all, he predicted it was going to be 28-24, the score. So we should say that he was just basically like totally wrong about the game. Um, and then, you know, you had on Twitter, like Hillary Clinton's former spokesman asking him when the government shutdown was going to end a couple weeks ago and stuff like that. So it's, to me, to me, the whole, the whole prediction thing is that's his gimmick, right? Don Meredith had singing and John Madden had the telestrator and Tony Romo has predictions. And that's, you know, a way to kind of get people who are lightly interested in football, interested in Tony Romo. And then, you know, then from there, you got to be great. All right, let's we we do need to talk now about the Patriots, the bedraggled Patriots, the team that no one <laughs> believed in. Um Ken Tremendous, Mike Schur, 
went off on this Boston fan went off on this after the game tweeting like in succession in all caps literally nobody thought we could do it they did baby they counted us out and we proved them wrong rags to riches baby nobody saw us coming but we proved the doubters wrong um when 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 these sorts of tropes stick oh my god I mean obviously it's accentuated by the fact that it's a Boston team doing this and this is the the least counted us out team in the history of professional sports. But uh, I, I'm I'm not sure whether it's amusing or a little scary the sort of self delusion that's required to stand up after the Super Bowl and say nobody believed in us, but Gronk, among others, <laughs> said no one ever thought we could do it. I think we hit the high point of this when Rob Parker, who was the FS1 opinionist who was clowned by the Patriots official Twitter account a couple of weeks ago was clowned by the Wendy's corporate account last night, <laughs> which, you know, he, he had this whole thing, you know, if you were convinced Brady is the goat, blah, 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 and kind of ran down the Patriots. And then the Wendy's account said, sir, this is a Wendy's. <laughs> I mean, we've now taken like Patriots self-conscious, nobody believed in that stuff and brought it to the corporate world, which means, Thankfully, it means it's over. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I don't know, who, who are the Patriots really talking to in those moments? Are they just talking to themselves, and we're just kind of overhearing it? Like Bill Belichick standing on the podium last night saying nobody believed in us, just kind of rehashing a speech he probably gave in the locker room or talking in front of the film room a couple of times this year. It's not, it's not really meant for public consumption is it or does it is it meant for public consumption just to get everybody mad at the patriots and then that weirdly fuels the patriots even more well ben i mean i think he's they're talking to like the bottom quartile of boston sports fans (laughs) i mean if we're gonna if we're gonna divide boston uh sports fans into quartiles maybe the bottom three quartiles i don't know but you did a, a really good interview with a patriots fan who i think is of uh you know, more than reasonable intelligence. But did you get the sense, Ben, that like this works even on the like more smarter and self-aware Patriots fans? Uh, you know, I I don't think I don't think so. I think that at this point, it's just like the thing you say when there's space to be filled in the world, right? Like I think that it just comes out of their mouth because it has to. Um, and I, I, you know, and I, I think that the the narratives that the like the more hardcore fans are more interested in uh, are are like we were saying earlier, maybe a little more a little, a little more technical, a little more based on specific players. I don't, you know, I don't get the sense that that the guy I interviewed is was really at any level of his being believes that no one that no one believed in the Patriots. So Brian, kind of last question that I had going into the game that I don't feel has been resolved after the game is that I felt that it it was really, really hard for me and for anyone else in the press to figure out new things to say about Brady, about Belichick, about the Patriots dynasty. Did you kind of sense that? (laughs) I don't know if there was any anxiety about that in the media, if that's not how the sports media works. Um, (laughs) Do you feel like anything new was said or uh, or could be said or will be said? Yeah, I feel like we did have a real storyline, quote-unquote, deficit uh, after the game. And I think if the Rams had won, right, it was all there on the table for us, right? End of the Pats dynasty. Is this it? Will they ever be back? Have we, have we seen the end of a, you know, an amazing and maybe you know, sports thing that will never happen again? But then the Pats won. 
and they won in kind of really boring, low-scoring fashion. So, yeah, it was just sort of like, Brady did it again. Boy, those Patriots. What a great team. No, <laughs> Everybody believed in them, but they don't think so. Yeah, I, I did notice that a little bit, kind of scrounging around. Even by press box standards, it seemed a little desperate last night. Did it also seem desperate to you in the two weeks leading up to the Super Bowl? I mean, I, I felt disengaged from the narratives. I mean, again, because it was Brady and Belichick for the 84th but the, time. But the funny thing was that going into the conference championship games, right, everybody was saying there's no possible bad, bad matchup, matchup here. Right. Any <laughs> game has so many amazing storylines. Not, tr- not true, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I also think we're kind of like now we're colored by that Super Bowl, right? I mean, if this had been, you know, 35-31 last night, even if the yeah. Patriots had won, we'd probably be a little more narratively excited this morning <laughs> instead of kind of like depressed and mellow. But it was just so boring that I think we now just everything in retrospect seems boring, too. Well, yeah, just- I mean, and, and the, 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 the thing is, and, and, and Barnwell does his best, but like no matter how well you explain a defensive game plan, when the biggest takeaway from a game is a game plan, which is literally a bunch of papers, uh, <laughs> there's just no way to make that as thrilling as, 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 other, as other outcomes. Brian Curtis, he does the Press Box podcast for The Ringer. He also writes also for The Ringer. Brian, thank you. We believed in you. We'll believe in Can you Can I go out on one of those signature Tony Romo noises like he had with Please. the third and one there in the fourth quarter? Where he goes, oh, <laughs> oh, Jim, it's so, oh, it's so close. I think this segment's ending, Brian. Oh, <laughs> see you guys later. See ya. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Last week, the New York Knickerbockers traded their good player, I use the singular advisedly there, uh, trading 23-year-old uh, Chris Dapps Porzingis to the Dallas Mavericks in exchange for a bunch of stuff, some first-round picks, some salary cap relief, throw in a DeAndre Jordan here and there. The initial response, Ben, to this trade was uh, from uh, Knicks Nation universally negative the insta response was people basically like throwing themselves off uh, off a bridge uh then the smart people came in and said actually uh this was a smart trade for the next year uh your kevin pelton's we love kevin pelton here on this program that uh this was this was a good idea for them to acquire some assets and then you ben mathis lily were the backlash to the backlash your natural mode in life. Reven- explaining the dumb take. <laughs> explaining that no, the initial gut reaction, leading with your gut, was right in this case. That it was dumb, it was stupid, people should be angry. Um, can you explain this take cycle and, and your view of how it developed? Well, sure. So, I, I mean, like you said, the, the initial reaction was just, was just complete panic and disbelief. Although tinged with with a little bit of belief because the Knicks basically do this every five years. They get rid of like whatever cause you had for hope, whether it's 
uh, you know, the, the nice start to this that season they had with Amari Stoudemire before they traded everyone on the roster for Carmelo. Um, you know, Jeremy Lin obviously was supposed to be uh, sticking around the Knicks. They were going to sign him for whatever it took until they changed their mind and decided to let him go. Um, and then now you have Kristaps. So, I mean, I mean, Knicks there's some are, comfort in that we've gone through this before. We know mm-hmm. we know this scenario. Also, you right. have to credit the Knicks with consistency. Yeah. You want consistency well, in your front office. Well, and so I think that's actually uh, part of the reason why there's, you know, this divide between between some more of the more hardcore Knicks fans and the national writers on this issue is because the Knicks fans are intimately familiar with the reality that the Knicks front office is not going to take advantage of whatever opportunities they have afforded themselves with this move. I mean, I, I also am a big fan of, of Kevin Pelton's. Uh, the other person I cite in, the, in my story was Andrew Sharp at Sports Illustrated, also a very uh, good, smart writer. Uh, I think that what those guys didn't quite, I mean, they looked at what was happening on the piece of paper that lists what went out and what came in. And what you have to take into account that I don't think they quite did was that the people that now have this cap space, you know, to spend on free agents are are the Knicks. They're the people that just decided to get rid of Chris Stapp's Porzingis <laughs> after three seasons um, and who didn't resign Jeremy Lin and who, who blew up the team for Carmelo Anthony and on and on and on. So I feel like even analytically, you have to, I don't know, price that in somehow to, to what happened. The great value of Chris Stapp's to the Knicks was that they couldn't screw him up. They couldn't screw up his acquisition because he was already there. Um, the, you know, the hardest thing for the Knicks is getting the good player onto the team. So I feel like that even on an analytic level, those takes didn't quite uh, fully encompass the situation. Stefan, curious for your thoughts, but one thing that we should say just for setup purposes is that the Knicks now going into next year have $71 million roughly in cap room, which means that they can sign two max free agents such as Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And so the the smart people who are saying this is actually a good trade you're accounting for the fact that um, the the best case scenario for the Knicks here is that you've now given yourself the opportunity to sign Durant and Kyrie Irving. Which ties into a point that you made in your piece, Ben, which is that that from the perspective of certain basketball writers and some fans, or at least disengaged fans who don't view being a fan of a team as an emotional, visceral thing, that the sort of money ballification of the way we view team construction is ruining fandom. Like, we were happy to have Kristaps Porzingis as a Nick because Kristaps Porzingis was really good at basketball and a fun player to have around. You're winging this? I'm winging this. I like the Knicks. I grew up a Knicks fan. Um, You know, that's what we want out of fandom. You want to have someone that you can enjoy. You can't enjoy cap space. And... You know, this is sort of a similar conversation to the one we had several times about the 76ers in the process was, is it worth it for four or five years to go through this because of this vague promise on the horizon that we're going to have a really, really, really good team? Look, the Sixers are better than they were. Are they the best team in the NBA? No. I mean, it worked. It worked for them, I think. But was it worth? Was it worth the five years in the desert? Sure. Yeah. I mean, usually when we're talking about whether decisions in sports are smart, we say, look at the process and not the outcome. Like, yeah, they should have gone for it on fourth and one because that was the right, the smart thing to do. Even if they didn't make it, we can't fixate too much on the outcome. In this case, it seems like the process doesn't really matter. And the outcome is the only thing that matters. And what you're saying, Ben, is that we have no reason to believe that we'll get the the desired outcome. But wouldn't 
or maybe you disagree with this. Like if you if they end up getting Durant and Kyrie Irving, you're still going to be sad that Kristaps isn't there because you like Kristaps. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I, it's kind of like the 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 the. Um, you know, the end game to all of this would be like, you know, you're you as a, suggesting that you as a fan should be happy if, uh, you know, 12 free agents that were signed before the season win a championship for your team. And, and obviously, I would be excited if the Knicks won a championship with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, however unlikely that is. But, uh, you know, like I said in the piece, a huge part of, of why you root for root for a particular team to win a championship is because you like the players on that team. Um, and so, you know, Trading Chris Stapps out for a player who might be a three percent better use of that cap space might, <clears throat> you know, be ultimately advantageous. But it, it reduces my my interest in watching the team and my enjoyment of watching the team, uh, you know, by more than three percent. Let's say because you know I've gotten attached to this particular guy and his story, his his narrative, uh, and and kind of replacing that with whatever uh, you know mercenary free agent comes in. Uh, it's not going to be. It's not going to be the same to watch. Right, and that it, you would be more likely to enjoy being a Knicks fan if you had Kristaps Porzingis and one good free agent, and the Knicks won forty-five games. That right, would exactly. Be, that yeah. would be an okay outcome. And that's that's the thing that uh, you know w- that we talked a lot, a lot about with the process is a big part of b- having a good, you know there are seasons that teams uh, that that fans remember fondly that didn't end in a championship. Um, every you know most seasons don't, and so you remember the one big win over the rival. You remember the the fifteen game winning streak. You remember making it past the second round of the playoffs for the first time. Well, so this, yeah, exactly. I mean, and so the idea that the only fulfilling uh, you know, that the only criteria should be whether this makes your team more likely to win a championship. That's not actually, you know, that's not actually how fandom works. That's not actually how the enjoyment of sports works. The problem is that you can't really take the Knicks out of this transaction. But but if you did, like Chris Stapps is coming off a torn ACL. The dude is seven foot three and the and skinny. The chance that a seven foot three guy coming off a torn ACL is going to remain healthy and be a franchise linchpin for a decade to come seems very slim to me. And so, getting off of him and getting into an opportunity to get another set of players to get draft picks and to get cap space is rational. Like there, it's not crazy to want to do that. But then you get into the specifics here, where it's like. The, the Knicks are blaming Chris Dabbs for not wanting to be there, which in itself is extraordinarily rational, saying, oh, we don't want to give a max contract to a guy who doesn't want to be on our franchise. Well, I don't think anybody wants to be on your franchise. So I guess you're not giving anyone a max contract. But it's it's a little bit like, you know, having the guy who ruins your steak, um, who sends it out just like completely, you know, burned to a crisp and saying, all right. You, you screwed that up, but now I'm going to give you like three more cuts of meat and hopefully you're going to you know figure it out this time. But, but the, the details also are problematic for Knicks fans and for any basketball fan because it just doesn't make sense. Like, so Chris Epps Porzingis walks into the Knicks office and maybe this has been building obviously over the last year and says, I'm disgruntled, I'd like to be traded. And the Knicks say, okay, he hasn't played all year. Maybe give it a shot. Maybe try to repair relations. Maybe try to get him back on the court. Um, well, it's maybe not sign someone over the, the over the summer, and maybe that will change things. Maybe give him a chance to work with their new coach, which he really hasn't had an opportunity to do. You know, Anthony Davis is lurking out there as trade bait, and the Knicks. Oh, he's going to the Knicks too. And the Knicks <laughs> trade for for a, a maybe 
promising point guard and a couple of draft draft picks and some. Yeah, we forgot picks. about Dennis Smith Jr. Yeah, we haven't been talking about Dennis Smith Jr. Ben. I mean, you know, poor guy. <laughs> poor guy because he has to go to New York, or poor guy because well, we're just, not talking you know, about him. Just to be what. Well, <laughs> I think he'll survive that. Uh, but I, yeah, to be the guy that, that got traded for the face of the fan franchise. And, you know, I, I have nothing against Dennis Smith Jr. He may end up being an excellent player. But he right now he's a second-year guard who's kind of struggling um, with adapting to the NBA and to be coming in on a team that already— <laughs> Some people you know, say he's a middle-class man's Emmanuel Moutier. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this team had 10 wins before they traded him Hardaway as part of this deal, who was probably, sadly, their best player. So, like, oh, we now forgot they're also getting Zion Williamson. We need to mention that, too. Yeah. Yeah, they're 14%, they're, po- they're possible 14% chance at, at getting Zion. And it's, it's just sad to see Knicks fans telling themselves this, you know, like just kicking the can further and further, further on down the road and, and letting the Knicks front office kind of sell that to them was kind of a sad part of this, too. Isn't there some arrogance here, too, Ben? The worst franchises in professional sports have become these sort of avatars of incompetence and greed and, and, and arrogance. I mean, the Knicks feel like we can do this. Oh, we're just going to get the cap space and we're going to sign two max free agents. Um, they believe their own lies. Well, yeah, and, and, and they're using this kind of, like I said in the piece, uh, this kind of language of a smart team. They're kind of, you know, borrowing this language of, of Moneyball, which, which has, as has been pointed out, Moneyball is about a good team. Moneyball isn't about a team that went in the tank for, for six seasons and lost 120 games. It's about how Billy Bean had these limited resources and yet every year put together a team that entertained its fans and, and went on winning streaks and got to the playoffs. Um, and so the Knicks are kind of using this language of, of oh, we need to, we need to have, make sure our, our culture and our max contract is you know, efficiently reflecting our values. They're kind of using this language to, to sell what is in fact a very old-fashioned failure to get along with their best player. Well, contrast this to what's going on with the Pelicans, though. I think there's some kind of— That's the team in New Orleans, right? It is. There's some kind of machismo element here where the Knicks want to act like they're the ones taking the lead and they're kind of bossing around and saying, we're shipping you out because we don't want you here. Whereas the Pelicans just look like totally ineffectual— and they're being dictated to by the player. And they're just sort of sitting there like, we don't know what to do. Should we trade him? Should He's going to sit out. Should we play him? Oh, the Lakers. Oh, the Lakers are putting all this pressure on us. But we don't know if we want to send him to the Lakers. They just look like they have absolutely no idea what they're doing. They're like being controlled by agents. And they just don't have um, the future of their franchise is being like dictated beyond their walls. And so the Knicks, at least they're like confident and stupid. Like I think there's I think there's something to that, Ben. And it plays into what you're saying too, Stefan. It's like <laughs> knowing how to talk about what you're doing is important and being able to retain your your job. I think James Dolan probably likes the fact they're saying, oh, this guy doesn't want to be a Nick. Like let's get him out of here. Yeah. I mean the one thing the Knicks have always uh been good at is having a very high level of self regard, which is, <laughs> which is, uh, which is evident not only in trading Chris Stapps, but also in this belief that, uh, you know, after all of this, Kevin Durant, who's just spent, you know, two, how many ever seasons with, with the best organization in basketball is gonna, is gonna want it to, to come to New York just because it, you know, the arena is physically located in Manhattan, you know, that they always can kind of just fall back on that.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now it is time for After Balls. We spent some time talking about uh, Christoph Porzingis. He is, of course, from Latvia. He is not the Three, only— six Latvia. He's not the only Latvian to have played in the NBA. There have been several players from Latvia. Andres Beardrins, Rodion's Kuric. Is that dude in the NBA still? Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's, oh, yeah. he's having he's a good year Nets, for the Nets. For the Nets, yeah. yeah. Davis Bertans, he's on the Spurs right now. Good the three-point first, shooter. The first NBA player from Latvia? Yep. Do you know who it is? No. It was Gundars Vetra. No, didn't know, don't know Gundar. He was on the Timberwolves for one season in the early 1990s, 1992, 1993. And uh, he had quite a career, average 3.5 points per game. But he also did this, Josh. Let's listen. Good pass, and Gundars maybe his first dunk of the season. I haven't seen Gundars dunk the ball in practice. That was his only dunk in the NBA. Gundars, saving it for the game. Yeah. He had a long career. Played all over the place in Europe. He's now coaching Spartak St. Petersburg. Stefan, what is your Gundars Svetra? Today it is no surprise, at least to sentient fans, when a football player quits playing football. That wasn't the case when, after just two seasons, Chip Oliver left the Oakland Raiders in 1970. Oliver was one of the very finest prospects in football, in the words of team owner Al Davis. He started at linebacker in Oakland's 17-7 loss to Kansas City in the American Football League championship game that January. Four months later, according to an October 1970 profile in Sports Illustrated, Oliver told Davis and head coach John Madden, quote, it's a silly game you're playing and quit. Oliver joined a commune north of San Francisco called One World Family of the Messiah's World Crusade, and he worked in its organic restaurant, The Mustard Seed. He reduced his possessions to some old clothes, an Instamatic camera, and a blanket inscribed Elks Club Bowl 1964. Material things just hold you back. They need upkeep, he told SI. Money doesn't mean anything to me. Oliver talked about getting into a higher state of consciousness. As soon as you start loving and relating to people, you'll find these people loving and relating to you. Oliver definitely was a human potential movement kind of guy of the 1970s, but he was ahead of his time in calling out football as violent, thankless, and stifling, a gigantic trip of ego mastery, he said. Football dehumanizes people, Oliver told SI. They've taken the players and made them into slabs of beef that charge around and hit each other, but where is their aesthetic soul, the feeling that they can accomplish high things? Oliver criticized his Raiders teammates for eating too much meat. He went vegetarian and took up yoga while he was still playing, for drinking too much, and for taking amphetamines. I didn't go to these people and wrap all this stuff on them. I tried to go to them in a nice way and say, wow, let's really try to get it on and win the championship. 
Oliver left the commune after about a year and with sports writer Ron Rappaport wrote a football tell-all called High for the Game. He appeared in a documentary about disenchanted athletes. He was busted for marijuana possession. And then after consulting with Jack Scott, who had founded the Anti-Establishment Institute for the Study of Sport and Society, Oliver in 1971 decided to make a comeback. It didn't go well. Just a few days into training camp, Oliver left a note for Madden and split on his motorcycle. A week later, he wrote a four-part series for the San Francisco Examiner. He had returned to be, quote, an instrument through which my football-playing brothers could be enlightened and be free of the eternal masculine courage peer group approval syndrome. But the truly creative are frustrated in football, he said. He just couldn't get his intellectual, emotional, physical balance right. Also, his weight had dropped from 230 to 158 during his sabbatical, and while he had put on about 25 pounds, he couldn't regain his strength or quickness. But for all of this, perhaps the most amazing thing about Chip Oliver has nothing to do with football. Exactly 50 years ago this month, in the offseason between his first and second seasons, before he went counterculture, Oliver acted in a pilot for the show that would become All in the Family. The pilot for ABC was titled Those Were the Days. Archie Bunker was known as Archie Justice, but still played by Carol O'Connor, with his wife Edith, played as she later would be, by Gene Stapleton. Chip Oliver was cast as Archie's son-in-law, Richard, or Dickie, who would be renamed Michael Stivick, and played by Rob Reiner. The pilot didn't air at the time, but it was showed on Nickelodeon's Nick at Night 20 years later. Let's listen to a scene. Gloria, Archie, and Edith's daughter is played here by Candace Zara, who'd lose the role to Sally Struthers, but who would have a long career in Hollywood. It's you, the establishment. You fat cats with your 24-inch TVs and your four-slice toasters and your ice-maker refrigerators. That's all you care about is what you got and how you can keep it. Well, I want to tell you something, sonny boy. You'd care about them things, too, if you had anything. If you wasn't living off of me, you, you ain't got a pot to peel a potato in. <laughs> Why you're getting on me? Because I was nailing you on the crime in the street. Oh, get out of here. Oh, get out of here yourself. I'm going to tell you something. Oh, Richard, don't start off. I know, Gloria. I'm sorry, but I got... Look, Archie, we got crime in the streets because we got poverty, real poverty. And we got that because guys like you are afraid to give the black man and the Mexican-American and the, all those other minorities their just and hard-earned and, and rightful share of the great American dream. <laughs> He wasn't smart. Okay, now let's listen to the same scene with Rob Reiner in the 1970 pilot, which CBS picked up and aired as the first episode the next year. Wait a second, it's you. Me? Yeah, that's right, you, the property owner, which with your 24-inch TVs and your four-slice toasters and your ice-making refrigerators. That's all you care about, Archie, is what you got and how you can keep it. Oh, well, you'd care about it too, Sonny Boy, if you had anything. It wasn't living on for me without a pot to peel a potato. I know what's bothering you. You're upset because I was nailing you on that law and order thing. You nailing me? Yeah, that's right. Now I'm, now I'm going to tell you something. Michael. No, no, wait a second. I, I'm, I, I'm sorry, Gloria. I know I promised, but I feel I got to say this. You know why we got to break down in law and order in this country, Archie? Because we got poverty, real poverty. And you know why we got that? Because guys like you are unwilling to give the black man, the Mexican-American, and all the other minorities their just and rightful hard-earned share of the American dream. Who said he wasn't smart? <laughs> I, I thought the pot, uh, the pot to peel a potato in line was, was funnier the second time. Yeah, yeah. 
I think we can agree, Josh, that Norman Lear made the right call to cast Rob Reiner and that Chip Oliver made the right call to not quit football to, co- to become an actor, but instead to join a commune. After his aborted comeback with the Raiders, Oliver continued his football dissidence for a while, and then he disappeared into civilian life. All in the Family ran until 1979 and is considered one of the greatest TV shows of all time. Indeed it is. Josh, what's your Gundars Vetra? Stefan, I did a whole long... Uh spiel about the uh, airball chant a while ago and its origins and how it's evolved in college basketball. There's another chant that I wanted to talk about that I feel does not get as much attention, does not get its due. Uh, Let's listen to a couple seconds of it. Are you familiar with the left, right, left, right chant? I've heard it. Yeah. So when a player fouls out, and I think it's pretty much exclusive to college basketball. The fans in the student section will uh, celebrate his march to the bench with a left, right, left, right, left, right, and then sit down upon the sitting down. Uh, I tried to figure out what the origins of the left, right, left, right chant were and was not particularly successful. The first um, reference I could find in newspapers.com to left, right, left, right, sit down was from the St. Cloud Times in 1949. Uh, and it reads, Mark's markdowns, hup, two, three, four, hup, two, three, four, left, right, left, right, sit down, all of you XGIs. I'm only talking about wall cabinets that have either left or right hand doors. Some of them are slightly as is, but when you consider an original price of twenty nine eighty five, you should be happy to march to the tune of 1985. So... Wall cabinets, not basketball. Um, Wisconsin State Journal, April 1991, a long feature about the Madison Muskies minor league baseball team, talking about a fan who is now a math teacher in New Jersey, was responsible for various activities at Muskies games like Kazoo Night and creating a Muskies songbook, but he was only part of the attraction. Section J became famous for instigating the Let's Go Fish chant and the left-right, left-right, sit-down-you-bum ritual after an opposing batter struck out. Hmm. So also a baseball thing. St. Louis Post-Dispatch from 1993 was the first reference I could find to college basketball, talking about how Kansas State fans yell as they move to the bench, uh, opposing players left-right, left-right, sit-down, with a grin on their face, uh, and then there have been other examples. Hawaii did it. Uh, Purdue does it. LSU does it, uh, et cetera. So the reason that I thought of this is because in the LSU-Arkansas game at LSU on Saturday, LSU uh, did this chant when Arkansas's best player, Daniel Gafford, sat down. And perhaps the reason that this chant hasn't caught on in the NBA, maybe there's another reason, but It's really dumb. It's extremely ineffectual because it's so easy to subvert. You're giving the opposing player a huge amount of control and agency. Now, let's listen to this uh, clip. Uh, We heard five seconds of it before, but this is from a game uh, at the University of Central Florida. It was uh, uploaded in 2013, and you'll get a sense of how this typically plays out. Let's listen to the full clip. Come on! 
Got him. Damn. Nailed him. Nailed him. Where was he walking? Was he like just walking around the so, court? So what typically happens? What typically happens uh, is that the player will like walk back to the bench, get a sense of what's happening, and then just like walk in place or just stand there and not do anything. And the fans get confused and don't really know what to do. The uh, you know the home team is shooting free throws. Maybe I'll sit down during the free throw. So you have to choose: Do you want to just scream, sit down while your own guy is shooting free throws? It's like this thing was not really thought through very well. It doesn't work. Uh, very easy for opposing players to troll, which should be a moment of joy and triumph. Mm-hmm. So often ends in frustration because the left and the rights just keep going on. Are there uh, other chants that you feel the need to uh, deconstruct? Other chants that I feel the need to deconstruct. Well, we did airball. We did left, yeah. right, left, right. Uh, I feel like one that doesn't get done anymore. Did you do this at at Penn where you would wave the newspaper and then ball it up and throw it onto the court? No, we did not do that. Um, but that was the one that I feel like was ubiquitous when I was growing up and you don't really see anymore just because no. of the lack of – respect or interest in print media. It could be that, or it could be that they don't want people throwing shit on the court anymore. <laughs> At Penn, we used to throw streamers, red and blue streamers onto the court after Penn's first made basket, and they outlawed that. That seems like a huge pain in the ass for oh, the custodial great, staff. Though, but it was awesome. Uh, our best chants, I think, were, I mean, with Princeton, it was always boring, the boring chant. Boring, boring. Um, and... One that became popular Easily for a subverted while. by Princeton doing something not boring. Right, exactly. It's winning. That, <laughs> that usually subverted it. The other one I really enjoyed is when the littlest, whitest guy on the other team would touch the basketball, everyone would start clapping, and as soon as he passed it, they would stop. Yeah. Just a little bit of self-loathing involved in that chant, perhaps? No, no, no. Oh, for me? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> That is our show for today. Stefan Fatsis uh, loves himself. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. 
It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.